0: not from men or through man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised him from the dead, and all the brethren who are with me to the ter- to the churches of Galatia, grace to you and peace from God the Father and our Lord Jesus Christ.
1: And you know what, could you go ahead and read through verse 5, please?
0: Who gave himself for our sins, that he might deliver us from this present evil age according to the will of our God and Father, to whom be glory forever and ever, Amen.
1: So, having read exactly five lines, someone tell me what the major idea of Galatians is. That's mostly a joke. Don't worry. You're not going to figure it out from the first five lines. But what I want you to think about is if you remember when we were talking about uh, Colossians and Philemon, how we can kind of see those breadcrumbs already at the beginning. And so maybe you're familiar with Galatians, maybe you're not. But I do want you to just look at verse 1 through 3 or verse 1 through 5. And is there anything that stands out in Paul's greetings? This maybe a little different from how he normally starts his letters. Is there anything that, that that catches your eye as unusual or just different, or something that you just say, well, this is interesting that he mentions this, that might inform us as to what the rest of the letter could be about?
2: We'll make sure to point out that he's,
0: he's coming through Christ, that is, uh, he's a man of God. Isn't it? His authority,
3: like
2: he said there, it's, that not man or man? He's wanting to make sure, It's like clarification there. Yeah. It's like, it's the
1: point <clears throat> yeah, I mean, just if we're reading in most of your English translations, there's like, it's in parentheses in the first verse, and it's kind of weird for him in the first verse to say, to like almost interrupt his own thought to say, uh, not a man. And so you're right. Yeah, that certainly should jump out at us. What else?
3: Verse 4, he kind of summarizes. it. It says, who gave himself for
1: our sins, that he might deliver us from this present evil age. Okay, so we see, uh, you know, through Christ, not through man in verse 1. And he actually mentions Jesus again in verse 3 and in verse 4. And as you mentioned, even says why Jesus came, to, to forgive us of our sins, to deliver us from this present evil age. Okay, so, so we can already see, uh, In spoiler alert, those, those are two that certainly are major players in the rest of the letter. But we already see a little bit of ideas uh, just in the first few verses. Anybody else see something that jumps out at them?
2: Well, he's actually bragging on them. But then he's going to have no know, He knows he's going to have to bring up the problem that they've let the world get to them.
1: So you're getting a little... On. You're getting a, jumping a little bit ahead, but you are right. If you look at verse 6, he really is going to dive right into... Uh, he's got some problems. <laughs> he's got some issues with the church. If you remember when we were studying Colossians, he went on and on for several verses in Colossians 1 talking about how I pray for you and I long to see you and I love all the good things you're doing and it right. was very complimentary and just gushing and flowing with praise. Um, someone go ahead and read for us verse 6 and 7.
3: I marvel that you are turning away so soon from him who calls you in the grace of Christ to a different gospel, which is not another, but there are some who trouble you and want to prevent the gospel of Christ.
1: So, uh, First, again, yeah, not all right. right. Um, if you read Corinthians, or if you remember our study of Colossians, or even Philemon, which was a little bit more upbeat, verse 6 is pretty early for Paul to already be starting a rebuke. He's normally a pretty upbeat guy. He, he tends to bookend his letters and very nice things about the church. He'll usually spend all of chapter 1 talking about really good things, and most of the last of the half of the last chapter of the letter talking about all the people he loves and all the good things there. And so it is kind of unusual that in verse 6 he's jumping right into – the King James says, I marvel that you are already turning away. Uh, I think it's the ESV says, I am astonished that you are so quickly turning away. And I I like the way it uses astonished because it kind of reflects the original language of like if if they had them, this sentence would have had an exclamation point. (laughs) He's saying, I cannot believe that you are already abandoning the gospel that I just gave you.
2: That's kind of like a teacher in school. They teach you, but then when you act up, they spank you. <laughs> so that's what he's got. He bragged on them at first, right here. He brought. He was. They. He knew they'd been received the gospel. They obeyed it, and now they're turning. So he's a preacher and a rescuer.
1: Oh yeah, he's he's definitely doing the uh, oh, um, edifying and admonishing. As we talk about all the time from 1 Timothy. Um, He actually put
2: the challenge out
3: there to them to follow God instead of what they
1: were doing. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Uh, Oh, yeah.
3: That's
1: totally what he said. So, yeah, just as you pointed out, verse 6 and 7, we also see a repetition of how many times in the first seven verses is he saying, of Christ, to Christ, from Christ, by Christ?
0: It's almost a reminder that what Jesus
1: Absolutely, yeah. That he he he's reminding them that this gospel it's a it's a new way of life. It's a new life. It's a rebirth. It's a rejuvenation. Um, certainly, something we kind of missed that I meant to touch on. Um, and I'll throw this out there: Does anyone see anything just unusual for his letters about verse two? Let's see if anyone catches it. There's not too many of his letters that are written to multiple churches, and we see in verse two he actually says to the churches of Galatia. And as we see, we'll look at a map here in a little bit later on. In fact, oh, that's right. This is why I stopped using the PowerPoints. I remember now. It'll come back up whenever I start clicking buttons, I think. But, okay. While that's loading, we'll have a map up eventually while our screen is buffering, I guess. Uh, But something we'll talk about is that uh, Galatia – Unlike Ephesus or Corinth or Colossae, was not just a city, but Galatia was actually a region. And so this says to the churches of Galatia, because in the region there were many cities, and there was a church in every city. So so he's writing to all of the congregations at Galatia, so it's it's somewhat of a circular letter. He's going to write it, he's going to tell the churches, you know, if this city reads it, pass it to the next city, and take it to the next city, and to the next city. And so something that we'll notice as we get into the text, if you... We can already probably guess that this is not going to have as many of the personal touches as some of his other letters do. If you remember when we were studying Colossians, Colossians ends with like three paragraphs of favors and name drops and call outs and says, remember this person and please ask this person and request this person. And not to totally jump ahead because it will be like three months before we get there. But if you look at the end of Galatians 6, there's really not any of that. He, he kind of just ends the letter with sort of a typical standard uh, sign-off after he's done saying what he has to say. And so we, we kind of see the details. We can begin to really uh, get an idea of the context of the letter, if that makes sense. Um, if you remember, again, like Colossians and Philemon, how we introduced the letter and talked about it. But I want us to see that all of that context that we typically can talk about is just from the text. And so if you just notice those little details, you can kind of piece together and sort of hazard a guess at some of the, some of the things going on. So we see he's going to be talking a lot about Jesus. He's already made sure they understand that he's, he's not coming on the authority of man, but he is coming from the authority of God. And he's already told us, that it reminded them that it is Jesus who forgives sins. It is Jesus who delivers us. And he has a little bit of a commentary there, doesn't it? We see in verse 4 a little bit of what Paul thinks about this present age. And he says it is Jesus who delivers you from this present evil age. So we, we see a little bit of, the, of Paul's worldview in verse 4 as well. Any other thoughts, observations from uh, verse 6 and 7? I know we just read that, but kind of 1 through 7. Do you have a
3: here? Yeah. Um, verse 6 and 7 uh, says, you know, he's marveled that they've turned away to a different gospel. The verse seven says, which is not another. Is that, what does he mean by that? Is he just saying that basically there's not
1: another gospel? Or so, so there's there's two ways to read that. But the first is yes, that he's saying, you know, there are others who are, he's kind of, it's almost rhetorical. It's not, not quite a joke, but just he's kind of making, like you said, a, a point to say that they're bringing you this other gospel. Not that there is another gospel. But there, is only, but there are some who want to pervert the gospel of Christ. Um, another way of reading it, and I don't see too many translations really emphasize this, but it is another way of reading it, is that not that there is, uh, that, that you're turning away to this doctrine, and that doctrine is actually not the good news of Christ. Um, it's not, it doesn't carry the same good news message that Uh, a gospel or teaching salvation through Christ teaches and we'll see exactly what he means by I think he's specifically also kind of calling this false teaching not good news if that makes sense so to kind of tease ahead without jumping ahead too much uh, we'll see as we keep reading what exactly this other gospel that's not really a gospel he's talking about we'll we'll kind of guess what that might be Um, but again, if we're just piecing together what we've read so far, Paul is saying I see you're turning away to this other thing. If we just look at the, just the sentences and the points we've brought up so far, what would you guess this other thing might be? If you know anything about what's going on in the early church or, and again, I know we're like five lines into this, so there's no real wrong answers because we've got 95% of the book to go through. <laughs> well, a lot of the churches um, in that
3: area, they were uh, engaging in just sinful acts and o- either openly or you know they would have members of the congregation do them and they would just you know, kind of sweep it under the rug to say and not address
1: it. Certainly so, and, and that could be maybe why he goes to great lengths in verse 4 to say it is Jesus who saves you from your sin and he's just saying look you're you're turning back he could be just saying you're turning back in those sinful ways
3: and so now probably just preaching a like like in the present time they preach a gospel that you know that they've twisted to accommodate
1: for their own lifestyles certainly so you've probably heard the illustration before that when we read these letters it's kind of like listening to one end of a phone call Mm -hmm. right if you've ever been in the car with somebody on the phone and sometimes you can pick up what they're saying because they're meeting somebody at the park or they're you know you know if if, if your spouse is on the phone in the car and this, just sometimes their tone you can know they're talking to their mom or their dad or they're talking to one of your kids or So we really only have Paul's side of the conversation, but if we're going to really understand, remember our two questions, what is his message to the Galatians? Our first question, what is his message to the Galatians? Well, if we're going to do that, we kind of have to figure out what is Paul really talking about? And so sometimes we have to sort of uh, not, I don't want to say guess, but sort of figure out uh, what the other side of the conversation might look like. So... Uh, just keep those those thoughts and those ideas that we're talking about in the back of our mind as we keep reading. Uh, we'll go ahead and finish up at least this little section here. Someone read verses uh, 8, 9, and 10, please. And even if we, or an angel can preach any other
2: gospel to you than
0: what we have preached, then be accursed. If we have said before, so now I say it again, if anyone preaches any other gospel to you than what you have received, let him be a curse. For do I now persuade men or God, or do I seek to please men? For if I still please men, I would not be a bond servant of Christ.
1: So, verse 8 is probably, if you've heard sort of the thesis statement of Galatians made, it seems to be what the pretty pretty heavily what this first section has been about, right? Because verse 8, he's kind of just repeating what he said in verse 6, and in verse 10, just kind of elaborates on verse 8. But he says, if anybody else brings you a gospel other than what has been preached to you already, let him be accursed. Thoughts on 7 through 10 before I keep going. What do you see that is interesting or that stands out to you from those?
3: I I mean, he basically repeats himself.
1: He's repeating himself. I've mentioned this before, but it's one thing if I'm typing up a letter. If I'm like sitting by candlelight bent over on a wooden table with like a quill and a sheet of sheepskin parchment, and I'm taking the time and effort to repeat myself, you think that's a big deal? <laughs> you think he's really trying to make a point? And he, and he says, So I say again, if anyone preaches any other gospel to you than what you have received, let him be accursed. If we take verse 9 and we kind of tie it back to verse 1, when Paul says, I'm an apostle and I'm not an apostle of man, but I'm an apostle through Christ, there's also a little bit of this idea of authority, isn't there? That he's saying, remember what you got from Jesus and don't listen to what other men are saying, don't listen to what these other things that are coming in that are being preached to you. And you'll notice, again, if we think about it in a level of authority, Verse 8 even says, he said, if even if I myself, like if Paul says, if I come back and I preach to you a gospel that's different to the gospel that I brought to you before, let me be accursed. How many times have I joked that if I get up here and start talking some nonsense, you guys better have something to say about it, right? If I bring you something next week that completely contradicts with what we studied in the Bible last week, that ought to be problematic. And so Paul actually says the same thing. And then he even says on top of that, if an angel from heaven preaches to you any other gospel than what we have preached to you let him be accursed so think about it just from a standpoint of authority he's saying not other angels not other messengers not other men nobody should be able to bring you something that contradicts or supersedes or has greater authority than that which stems from jesus christ and if we just look at these 10 letters why is it the message of christ that's so important If we just look back at the nine or ten verses we've read so far,
2: why is the message what?
1: Why would it be that the message of Christ is the message that's so important? What does verse four say? What does verse four say?
2: Uh, it's important because
1: it saves us from our sins. So so already
2: it's perfect law of liberty. Absolutely. and,
1: And there's many many reasons, but if we're if we're just looking at Galatians. He's appealing over and over to Jesus. And just look at what he said already. Why? Because that is the message that will save us from our sins. Exactly. So, so far we're really seeing him preaching against these, these other false teachers that might be out there. And we really don't know what those false teachers are. We're not really sure where they're coming from yet. But clearly they're bringing some kind of message that Paul is saying, don't let that supersede uh, the gospel that you have in Jesus Christ. Um, something we talk about a lot um, Specifically, in our teaching, is that there are others out there that would say, Well, if the Bible conflicts with some tradition or some practice or something we've always done, we say, Well, we're going to side with what we've always done. But we know that if, how many times when we study scripture just a couple weeks ago, and we talked about, you know, we as the church, where do we get our doctrine? We understand everything has to be subordinate to uh, the Word of God. It has to be subordinate to the message that stems from Christ. If you preach the
2: gospel, you, the true gospel, the perfect law of liberty, you're not going to be too popular among men. You might take yeah. in a lot of money, but you're not going to be too popular with God either. If you preach the gospel, you have to say things that people don't want to hear. yes. It makes it hard on us. We don't to think. Which Why bring, is God so hard on us?
1: Which in a way brings because us back to the, us. the very tone of the letter, right? That Paul's kind of rebuking them and correcting them. Uh-huh. So yes, yeah, sometimes preaching that gospel is not popular. One of the main points I think of this passage is you cannot serve God and man. Absolutely. Abso- yeah, he's, he's definitely, in, all the time in Scripture we see, um, and this happens Old Testament and New, we see contrasts featured really heavily, right? Like just Proverbs, how many of Proverbs are written? You know, the wise man does this, a foolish man does this, a wise man does this, a foolish man does this. It, anytime you're reading scripture and you see contrasts like that, definitely your ears kind of perk up because he's saying, you know, I'm not of man, I'm of God. Don't listen to that from men, but listen to that from God. Don't. And so there's clearly some, uh, a contrast being made between that which is of men versus that which is of God. What other anything else you see that it maybe seems to come up a lot just in this first section we've read? Any words that are repeated or any ideas that uh, jump out so far?
0: It just seems that he like just can't get over the fact that they're already turning against God. You know,
1: you, could, you know, just you know. Which, which, if you remember in Colossae, we mentioned how Paul went out of his way to say that you know I haven't seen you in person. That, that really could tell us that he's been there before, right? If he's, if he's saying you're quickly turning away, well, that means clearly not only have I been there, but I know how much time has passed since I've been there. So again, if we just start to you know, paint the picture and build our context of the letter, because we, we talk all the time, right? If, what's the most important thing about understanding Scripture? context. you, you got to understand the context that it exists in. And we'll, of course, that's, that context is sometimes the chapter or it's the, the, the book that it's in, but it's also the historical setting, right? And we can kind of build this from just really breaking down uh, the text itself a lot of times. So
0: I think one of the points of that we have to consider is we have a Bible that, say, <laughs> ready for it, ready, you know, whenever we want. Right. You know, and it's, you know, out of sight, out of mind. And I, I'm sure it was much more difficult, you know, back then. But if you don't see things almost every single day, you know, especially if you're new in Christ, and like that, it would be easy to immediately go back to your old way.
1: Absolutely. Certainly. Yeah. And, I mean, the it's odd because we live in an era, especially if we compare ourselves to the New Testament times, we... we Every single one of us has a Bible, and if we don't have one sitting in our lap, we probably have one somewhere in our house. There's people who don't go to church anymore who probably at least have one sitting in their lap or in their house somewhere. Were you going to say something? Yeah,
3: one, one thing that he, he gets into it everywhere he goes is that the question is authority. It's a mm. There's enemies in everywhere he went. You know, so he's got to get them in the brain around him, except for you state?
1: Certainly. That, that's definitely, I didn't even mention that, but that's absolutely one way we could really view uh, verse 1, is not just authority in the context of the message of Christ over everything else, but also Paul as an apostle of Christ. And he's going to get into that. That's a really good job of looking at verse 1 and seeing what he's going to talk about later, because what we're going to talk about probably next week uh, why Paul goes back to his apostolic authority. And he's going to talk about how he is a true apostle of Christ. I mean, we know Paul was not one of the 12, right? He was not, and he, he actually probably uh, never followed Jesus while Jesus was still alive. But he still calls himself an apostle. And that's, that's kind of odd, isn't it? Keep that in the back of your mind. And next week when we dive, dive into the, the text a little bit more, we're going to see what he means by his own apostolic authority. If it's working... Now I'm gonna try and pull our slides up. Do I need to go back there and like wiggle the mouse or something? Yeah. Okay. I told you guys our AV team expanded uh, from one to two. So if you have complaints, you're welcome to sign up. We got it. (coughs) Hey, look at that. So. Oh, that might be a little better, huh? If I turn myself on. (laughs) My bad. That's why uh, Michael and Van are probably running back and forth. Grace and peace. Grace and peace. Both peace and grace. Um... So I mentioned a lot of times the historical context can be driven, uh, pulled up from the text. I want to look at, zoom out a little bit, and we're going to look at the big picture, because I want us to understand, hmm, this is not for work. Um, now unplug it.
0: Yeah. <laughs> Make sure your left foot's off the ground, you're facing towards the northeast. <laughs>
1: I went through a moment. I was like, man, I stopped using PowerPoint in my Colossians class. Why did I do that? I'm remembering. Um, so, where in the world is the Apostle Paul? So this is a picture of the area north of the Mediterranean Sea. Um, Rome and Italy and all the countries we'd actually be familiar with are over this way. Uh, Jerusalem and Israel is over this way. Egypt is down here. So we got the big old sea. There's a little, a few towns you might recognize the name of from texts in the Bible. You've got Ephesus way over here, Troas you may have heard of, uh, Cilicia, Saul of course is Saul of Tarsus, and he's visited, all these routes represent his missionary journeys. We're not going to talk about all those, but I want you to notice that this region all throughout here is called Galatia, and as we kind of talked about, Paul's been there before. Not only has he been there before, he's been there like three times. So he's, he's, he's been to many of these churches. In fact, the area is so large, there's probably other churches that have been planted that he's not familiar with. But a lot of those, like Derby and Lystra and Iconium, if you've ever done a study of Acts, those four cities down there get mentioned over and over and over because Paul's very familiar with these people. And uh, mostly Acts 13, 14, you see, is where he preached through this region before. And they were part of this region known as Imperial Galatia. So as, as I kind of mentioned before, it was a, is a region, and that fits with what it says in verse 2, right? The churches of Galatia. So our destination and our date. As we mentioned, it's directed at the whole region. Um, it's probably written at the beginning of this ministry around 48 AD. And it highlights some issues. There we go. So I mentioned earlier that sometimes reading one of his letters is like listening to one end of a phone conversation. Well, the beauty of Galatians is we actually have the somewhat of an account if you go to Acts. So if you have your Bibles, go flip over to Acts. And This might seem odd that we're going to look at Acts in the middle of a study of Galatians. Uh, but the Acts of the Apostles covers this time period uh, after Jesus' resurrection uh, up until really right about Paul's death. The Acts covers this, this period of about 20 years. And Acts is pretty chronological, right? It's got these different scenes that take place one after another, sometimes over periods of years and months in different towns. But as Paul is going throughout his ministry, he's writing all these letters. And the letters really don't tell us anything about Paul's life, but Acts kind of does. And so we actually have a scene in Acts that paints the picture of maybe some of the things that were going on in the early church uh, when Galatians was written. And it's kind of unique in that regard. Galatians, First and Second Thessalonians; these were written during some of the scenes in Paul's ministry in Acts. Some of his other letters were written later, uh, and so those are not from the earlier time in his life. But I highlight this, and if you're sitting at the back, you probably can't see. But there's a lot of room up front, so I understand why you're back there. Um, just kidding. Not saying you're not as important if you're back there. I'm just saying, uh, you know. Solve the problem is all, I guess um, so if we look at acts the conversion Paul's conversion accounts in Acts nine. Well if we look in Galatians one, we're going to see he talks about his conversion, he talks about his apostolic authority. Um, in, Act, in Galatians, a little bit later in just in chapter one, he's going to talk about the first time we'll do this he's going to talk about the first time he was there. Well, if we go look at Acts nine, we can read about the first time he was visiting some of those cities that we saw on that map. and so he revisits uh, back to there in Acts 11. And then in Acts 15, there appears to be some problems at one of the churches in Galatia, and that's what we're going to look at because we'll see in the rest of the letter he refers back to those same exact problems. So flip over to Acts chapter 15. Any questions? I don't know if I explained that the greatest, but does everyone understand why we're looking at Acts even though we're studying Galatians? Okay, I see a lot of nods. I see nobody shaking their head, so we'll we'll move on. Um, Acts chapter 15, and we'll talk about this for a few minutes. It gives us some insight into what's going on. Um, Acts 14 talks about Paul's travels and some of these specific churches that send off Paul. We're not going to read all of chapter 15 for the sake of time, uh, but someone read for us verses 1 and 2. We'll read a few highlights here. Someone go ahead and read verses 1 and 2 of Acts chapter 15
3: certain men which came down from Judea taught the brethren and said, except you be circumcised after the manner of Moses, you cannot be saved. And therefore Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and disputation with them. They determined that Paul and Barnabas and certain other men should go to Jerusalem and to the apostles and elders about this
0: question.
1: So there's our guy. there's our author, there's Paul. In, uh, I didn't highlight this in Galatians, but Galatians says he was written, it says, Paul and the brothers of so-and-so. Paul was with Barnabas. Paul's with Barnabas here. And they have this issue and it says, you know what, we, this is above our pay grade. They say, we, we are not able to come to a conclusion on this because it says Paul and Barnabas kind of had a dispute with other of the, the men of Judea in verse 1. So they say, you know what, we think one thing, you think another thing. We're going to take this above another level. We're going to talk to the apostles and some of the other shepherds of the church. In verse 3 through 6 kind of just tells us who sent them, the church that sent them. And it, and it says a little bit of what happened when they get there. Um, but look at verse 6. And I'll read a few verses here. Look at verse 6 of chapter 15. Now the apostles and elders came together to consider this matter. And when there had been much dispute, Peter rose up and said to them, Men and brethren, you know that a good while ago God shows among us that by my mouth the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. So we know if we've ever studied Acts, Peter was the one who had the vision, who brought the gospel to the Gentiles, and he's just telling the church, you know that God chose us, and by my preaching, uh, the Gentiles have heard the gospel. Verse 8. So God, who knows the heart, acknowledged them by giving them the Holy Spirit, just as he did us, and made no distinction between us and them, purifying their hearts by faith. Now, therefore, why do you test God by putting a yoke on the neck of the disciples, which neither our fathers nor we were able to bear? But we believe that through the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, we shall be saved in the same manner as they. So really, I probably could have just read verse 11 there, but he's saying, "Look, we've been preaching to the Gentiles. The Gentiles have received the Holy Spirit. God told God told us to pre- preach to the Gentiles. So why would we try and put extra things on them that the Gentiles, neither us really can bear? We instead believe that just as we will be saved by the grace of God, so shall these people. And the text goes on to tell us that that Barnabas spoke, that Paul spoke, that uh, James also spoke. And they come to this conclusion after, after they quote another scripture here in verses 16 through 18. But they come to this conclusion down in verse 19. Someone go ahead and read for us verse 19 through verse 22, please. Yeah, I'm sorry, yes, Acts 15,
0: 19-22. It is my judgment, therefore, that we should not make it difficult for the Gentiles who are turning to God, instead preaching, write to them, telling them to abstain from food polluted by idols, from sexual immorality, from the meat of strangled animals, and from blood. For Moses has been, has been preached in every city from the earliest times, and is read in the synagogues on every Sabbath. Then the apostles and elders of the church decided to choose some of their own men and send them to Antioch, with Paul and Barnabas. They chose Judas, Judas called Barabbas. Yeah, it's good. Yeah, you're
1: good. Getting... That section there in verse 22, it says, Judas, who they also called Barsabbas, and you might be able to understand why they called him Barsabbas instead of Judas. <laughs> Not the same Judas. That guy's dead. Um... So, it's, so essentially they have this conflict they come together they approach the apostles and elders and there's many people who are not named but just looking at Acts 15 it tells us that James is there, Paul is there, Peter is there, Barnabas is there Like everybody we've at least heard of is present at this gathering little meeting of the minds and they say well what are we going to do with with all these people who are Gentiles because all the Jews are saying well why why are they not having to do all the same things we have to do and they come to this conclusion and they say uh, the They conclude three things. There it is. Uh, Not to abstain from that polluted by idols, abstain from sexual immorality, and to abstain from things that are strangled and from blood. We're not going to really dive into the cultural trappings of why they picked those things, but understand that what that means is that everything else that the Jews had to keep of the law before this point, they are not telling the Gentiles to keep. They say, you know what? You don't need to be circumcised. You don't need to uphold the Sabbath. You don't need to... Do all of the sacrifices and celebrate Yom Kippur and you know meet at the tabernacle and all this. All we want you to do is abstain from things polluted by idols, abstain from things that are strangled, and from blood. And like I said, we're we're not going to dive into why they picked those things, but understand that there was this conflict. They they met together, they had this council, and out of that council was this result. But it is right in the middle of this, during this time, that Galatians is written. In Galatians, it was actually one of the congregations that it says – I lost it, but at one point it said they came from Antioch, or that the church at Antioch was one of the ones having this issue where it kind of arose. And I can almost envision almost like appealing to the Supreme Court. That the congregation had an issue. They called Paul. Paul said one thing. They called James. James said another thing. They said, well, you guys need to give us an answer. So they call all the apostles together, and the apostles settled it. But Galatians gives us kind of a snapshot of this this time, of what was kind of going on at the church when they were going through this period of conflict. And so that is really the context in which Galatians is written. And so as we'll see next week when we dive into the rest of chapter 1 and we look at chapter 2… We'll really see why some of the issues that Galatians talks about are are emphasized. And that is, if you remember, sorry, I'm trying to find Galatians. I don't have my normal Bible. Um, If you remember some of the issues that we said, well, what is this false doctrine? What is this teaching from man? What is this going on? Those were those Judaizers that Acts talks about. So this false doctrine that he's saying, if you remember, why does he keep going back to Christ? Well, because these other people are trying to appeal to the law of Moses and they're trying to appeal to their authority under rabbi so-and-so or the commentary of rabbi so-and-so in this, this sort of Jewish history. And they, they go to Paul and they say, Paul, you're not a, a real minister of, the, of, of Christ. You're not a real minister of God because you're not, you know, you were not trained under these people or you're not really adhering to the same thing we're adhering to. And so Paul's saying, no, 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 no I'm not. I don't have anything to do with those Jewish, those Jewish rabbis and the fathers and the commentaries that you're adhering to. You know why? Because I'm an apostle, not of man, but of Christ. And so even though we see in other texts, Paul, if you notice sometimes in Acts, Paul really em- emphasizes his Jewishness. He really plays it up. He says, look, I was one of you, and, I, and I, if you know his conversion story, he used to be Saul, now he's Paul. But here he actually emphasizes not any of his Jewish upbringing or his Jewish education, but in Galatians he emphasizes his revelation in Jesus Christ. Why? Because that is what was dividing the church. And so he says it's not the Jewish law that matters. It's not the Mosaic law that matters. It's not what you think your fathers and your fathers and your ancestors did that matters or what Abraham did that matters. What matters is the word that, of God that came through Jesus Christ. And so we're going we're to see that sort of play out as we continue studying chapter 1. Yes. Uh, Galatians 1.10, it says,
3: or do I now persuade, persuade men or God? And then right after it says, or do I seek to please men? What is he saying there? Because it seems, it seems...
1: I don't know why the King James uses persuade there. Um, I typically study out of an ESV, but I think... The message is I'm, he is not working to please God. The second the second part of that sentence is, I think, renders the truer meaning of the whole verse. Um, I don't know why it uses – Doesn't who has not King James? Someone else read verse 10 in a different translation if you have it. Or do you have anything other than persuade right there? Please. Please. Okay, so the same thing. Yeah, I would, he's – it's weird because he's – if we think of how we use the word persuade, he's absolutely trying to persuade men. It's, it's kind of a weird one of those where when the way that word was used not that long ago versus how we use it now in English. But um, the, the true reading there is he's not working to please men. And that's why he says, if I still did, I would not be a bondservant of Christ. And it's really just a callback to, to verse 1, how he says, I'm an apostle, which just means one sent. I'm sent not by men or through men, but through Jesus Christ in God the Father. Good question, though.
0: Mine actually says, I am now trying to win the approval of men or... Am I now trying to win the approval of men or of God? Or am I trying to please
1: men? If I was still trying to please men, I would not be a servant of God. That's, I think, the phrasing I was looking for in my head. Yeah, he's not working for the approval of men, but the approval of God. Good evening, Our invitation song tonight is going to be number 655, number 655. I want to talk very briefly in our time tonight to talk about the idea of planning. Um, We've done lots of planning lately as a congregation. We've held many meetings, had lots of discussion. I'm hopeful there will be much more planning in the weeks and months to come. Uh, But I want to talk about planning specifically in regards to ministry, in regards to the gospel. Because in the Bible, the the concept of planning in ministry is certainly a biblical principle. Many of us are familiar with 1 Corinthians 9.24 where Paul says, Do you not know that in a race all the runners run, but only one gets the prize? And so he tells them to run in such a way as to get the prize. And so we as Christians do not run aimlessly. We do not run a race without purpose. Um, I've heard many good lessons on John 4. In in John chapter 4, Jesus approaches the woman at the well. And I've heard somebody break down that, well, the time of the day and the the region of the place he was at and where he was going to, and and they talk about all these details in the text that demonstrate that Jesus was looking for a specific type of person, that he was looking for somebody who was in need, and he was looking for somebody with whom he could share the gospel. There was intentionality in his ministry. Ephesians 5.15 very similarly, says, look carefully then how you walk, not as wise, not as unwise, but as wise. And so the Bible is full of examples of, of planning in ministry, of what we would call intentionality, of people being conscious and intentional in their personal evangelism and their attempts to share the gospel with people. And part of intentionality is, is just simply having a plan. One of my dad's favorite sayings growing up was if... You fail to plan, you plan to fail. If you do not come up with some kind of way in which you plan to proceed and go forward and actions you are going to take, nothing is going to happen. My, my simpler translation into my life is if, if I don't write it down, it doesn't happen. <laughs> I've got a lot going on in between the ADD the ADHD. If something's not five seconds in front of my face, boy, if it's gone, it's memory of a goldfish sometimes. And so you'll often see things, right, me writing things down if you're telling me something. But I fear as Christians, we quite often fail to plan in our evangelistic efforts, both uh, on a congregation scale, but also just simply as individuals. Uh, perhaps we support those who do evangelistic work. We support those who do mission work. And, and I'm sure all of us think that, well, if I was ever in just the right opportunity, certainly I would take advantage of it. And what we usually mean by that is, well, if it was thrown right in my lap, then I bet I would do something with it. But otherwise, probably not. And so I, oftentimes I fear we fail to make any real plan or have genuine intentionality in our evangelistic efforts. If you have your Bible tonight, turn to Luke chapter 16. And if you do have your Bible, congrats, you're already at least in the first step of planning when it comes to the way you approach your study and your Christian life. But if you have Bible, turn to Luke chapter 16, and we're going to look at the story of the rich man and Lazarus, beginning in verse 19. Luke chapter 16, verse 19. There was a certain rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen and fared sumptuously every day. But there was a certain beggar named Lazarus, full of sores, who laid at his gate desiring to be fed with the crumbs which fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, the dogs came and licked his sores. So it was that the beggar died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's bosom. The rich man also died and was buried. And being in torment in Hades, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham afar off and Lazarus in his bosom. Then he cried and said, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus that he may dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am in torment in this flame. But Abraham said, Son, remember that in your life you received good things, and likewise Lazarus evil things. But now he is comforted and you are tormented. The basic moral from this story, the basic teaching is often the idea that those who poor in this life uh, but are obedient to God will be rewarded in the next. And conversely, that those who are rich in this life but not obedient to God might not be so lucky in the next life. And that's kind of the basic surface level teaching. It's a very good one. It's also sometimes a jumping off point for discussions about what Abraham's bosoms mean and the Hadean realm and the thief on the cross and all this and that. But the text also does something else. If you're, if you're really reading it and you're taking it seriously, if you will... It forces you to think just a little bit about what the afterlife will actually look like. And it goes beyond the language we're used to thinking about. It doesn't talk about mansions, robes, and crowns, or streets of gold. But actually it forces us to think about what the afterlife will be like for people on the other side, if you will. There's not many hymns written about that, perhaps fortunately. But it forces us to think about what the afterlife might look like for those who are not obedient to God. And I say that because it forces us to think about what the consequences of our actions are or what our plans are, not just for ourselves, but actually for other people. Because if you look at this story, the focus of it is actually the interaction between Lazarus and the rich man. He says in verse 27: He says, I, I beg you that you would send him to my father's house, for I have five brothers that he may testify to them, lest they also come to this place of torment he begs abraham who is in heaven to somehow reach back into the world and and share with someone in his life to say if only someone had had told us if only someone had brought the gospel to us if only someone had surely things would be different and of course abraham tells the man this is impossible we as christians have the ability to impact people's lives on a level that they and we could never imagine And if we truly believe that it has impacted our life, we ought to be planning to have some kind of impact on other people's. And so my challenge tonight, in just our short time, is to to write it down, to pray on it, to follow up on it, to have some kind of idea of how you are going to share the gospel with at least one other person in your future. And of course, if you are not someone with whom the gospel has been shared, if you are